0: From the book of Acts, the residents of Jerusalem said, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, friends. This past Thursday, as you know, was June 6th, which, if that doesn't ring a bell for you, was the 75th anniversary. Of the Allied invasion of Europe, specifically through Normandy in France. And we, uh, if you saw it on TV, there were great big celebrations over in France. And uh, we now sort of think of the Normandy invasions as a great big victory, and rightly, I should say, an opportunity to thank those who are willing to die for their country and willing to take the risk of ending their lives to protect those whom they don't even know, i.e. you and I. And we look back on sometimes these events with great um, sense of the inevitability of victory, but if you know your history, that's not true. In other words, you may not know that the invasion of Normandy was 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 a close one. President Eisenhower was faced with a very difficult decision Uh, You may know that that little body of water between uh, the continent and and, uh, England, known as the English Channel, can be a bit rough and uh, cantankerous at times. And Eisenhower was faced with with a dilemma. A dilemma is a decision which has one of two answers. And Eisenhower's dilemma was this, do I take the risk and invade or do we wait another month for low tide? For the, uh, to land the troops, and the problem was if he delays, the Germans discover that they're waiting, and the Germans already knew something was coming. And so what you might not know is that Eisenhower faced a terrible, terrible, gut-wrenching decision. His decision was, his command was, his orders were, let's go. And as he was driving away from headquarters, he told his driver, I hope to God I'm right. Eisenhower even drafted a speech, you might not know this either, he even drafted a speech in the event that the invasion failed. So it was a close one. Now of course we know in hindsight with the benefit of history that the invasion was a success and what we also know and what everybody knew is that once the Allies had established a beachhead, victory was assured. The Americans knew it on D-Day plus one, or actually even the evening of June 6, 1944, once the beachhead had been established with much loss of life. Eisenhower knew the game was over. Even Erwin Rommel, if you know him, he was a German general, and in fact, Erwin Rommel was in charge of maintaining the Atlantic Wall, the fortifications along the western coast of France. When he got word, he was back in Berlin visiting his wife on her birthday, by God's providence, but when he got word that the Americans had landed and established a beachhead, they'd actually gotten a foothold, Rommel even said, the, the war is decided. Now, it would take 11 more months until May 1945 for V-Day, Victory Day, and in the meantime, between June 6, 1944 and May 1945, the suffering would be enormous. The death would be catastrophic. The destruction of Europe almost insurmountable. But after D-Day, here's my point, after D-Day plus one, everybody knew that victory was assured. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'm a patriot. I love history. But today is also the Feast of Pentecost, which actually, not unlike D-Day 75 years ago, assures us of a very important fact, that the battle is won. Victory for the Christian is assured. Yes, between now and then, when Christ returns, there will be suffering, life is hard, people will die. But Pentecost reminds us that victory is assured. And I'm going to look at this victory today, God's victory, and what it means for you and I in three points today. First, I'm going to look at point number one, that God is a destroyer of idols. Secondly, that God is a builder of things permanent. And finally, that God's victory gives you and I hope. Point one, God is a destroyer of idols. Point two, God is a builder of things permanent. And three, God's victory gives you and I hope. It's point number one, God is a destroyer of idols. Now, if you were reading along, we read in Genesis chapter 11, a few moments ago, this famous story of the Tower of Babel, where all the humans on the earth had one language. This is right after the Noah's Ark and the reestablishment of humanity on earth. And the people that are there, they get an idea, right? You get too many people together, they've always got ideas. And we find that they want to build a tower, and here's why. Verse 4. They say, let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound too bad, right? Sounds like like a big construction project. Katie, my daughter, and I were up at UCF, University of Central Florida, outside of Orlando last uh, week or two ago. She's going to be going there in the fall. UCF is a massive school, and they are building stuff everywhere. A new medical center. I mean, somebody even said that UCF stands for uh, Under Construction Forever, (laughs) They're always, there's stuff being built all around. It's kind of exciting, and it's actually kind of a hopeful, kind of encouraging thing. But that's, that's not what they're doing in Babel. What they're actually doing, listen to this closely, otherwise it makes no sense. What they're actually doing is they are building an idol. They are building a tower to reach the heavens to make a name In other words, they're not going to wait for God to come to them. They are going to take matters under their own control. They are going to assert their authority and they are going to build a tower to him and thereby prove to him, God, I really don't need you after all. I'm in control, old man. And you know what, friends? We all do it. Each of us has an idol in our own lives. And if you're like me, you got lots of them. What do I mean by that? Well, wh- let me ask you this. What is your Tower of Babel? What are, the things, what are the things that you use to prove yourself, to earn your way, to control your environment? The things you live for, the things you strive for, the things you want to prove yourself amongst your peers. doesn't take too much to think about this. If you don't know, I'll ask it to you like this. What's one thing, if it was taken from you, would destroy you? That is your idol. Maybe it's your money, or your job, or your zip code, or your circle of friends, or your new boat, or your kids, or your wife, or the fact that you are the rector of one of the fastest growing parishes in the diocese of Central Florida. That's one of mine, I'll admit it, and I'll admit it to you, friends, because we've all got them. We've all got idols. We've all got things that we place in our lives that we rely upon for value and self-worth and control. But the problem is that whenever you place something, or even more tragically, someone in God's place, that something or someone will fail you and you will destroy it in the process. My kids have friends that their parents push, 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 push push to get to an Ivy League school, and some of them did, but not without great cost and great resentment. See, God knows that if you put something or someone in his place, it will inevitably fail you. And that is why God is a destroyer of idols. He thwarts, God thwarts the Babel builders, He confuses their language. He halts their building campaign. He destroys their idols, not because he doesn't love them, but because he does. And he knows that striving for meaning and power and significance in this world and anything but him will fail you. And he will blow it up. He's done it with me lots of times. Give you an example. Some of you know I went to Penn State, right? And how hard it is for me to wear Ohio red. I will tell you that today. You may not know, I actually, when I was an undergrad at Penn State, I worked really, really hard. I wasn't a terribly good student. I had to work hard for it. And I worked hard for it because I had a goal. And that goal was simple. I was going to get a Ph.D. in industrial psychology and work for a consulting firm and make tons of money. And so I worked hard. I was going to prove myself, and I did it. I, got out, I graduated from Penn State, I went to North Carolina State University for a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. State was one of the best schools in the country for it. I was there, I had it all. I had my goal that I was going to use to control my life and you know what? God blew it up, boom! I was in grad school, 23 years old, I was a third year grad student, second year. Youngest kid in my class of six for that PhD program. I was on top of the world. I had the world by the tail, and I was miserable. I can look back on it now and thank Jesus for blowing up my idol, but I'll tell you, when I was in the middle of it, it was the most gut-wrenching period of my life, one of them anyway. You know why? Because right now we are between D-Day and V-Day, where life is hard, where suffering is real. It's not easy, it's not pleasant, having your idols destroyed and your world turned upside down. Anybody here like that? I don't. Losing an idol is by definition suffering, just like the months between V-Day and D-Day. But friends, here's the thing I want to leave with you, that God is working on you. He's trying to train you to trust him and not trust yourself. And he does it, and he will do it in lots of ways, but one way he'll do it is by destroying your idols. But God won't leave you there. God is a destroyer of idols, but second point, God is also a builder of things permanent. Luke tells us that when the day of Pentecost arrived, the apostles were all gathered together in one place, and it's a sound like a rushing wind came through the place where they were. What is God doing? Well, he thwarted Human's plans to reach him on our terms, he blew up that idol, but now God undoes that curse by reaching down and building something himself. Let me show you. See, as Floridians, we think of wind as destructive, right? We live in a hurricane part of the world. We think of, the hur- of wind as destructive. I was driving out to Pensacola a week ago along I-10, right, along the, uh, the, the panhandle there, and do you remember back in October of 18, there was a hurricane that came through named Hurricane Michael. Remember that? Cat 5, a monster of a storm. It came through, thankfully, in a part of the panhandle, which isn't very heavily populated, which isn't saying much because most of it's not populated. But I was driving along 10 at mile marker 155, and I must have been driving through where the hurricane came ashore, and man, it was it was It was destroyed. There were a whole fields, acres and acres and acres of pine trees bent, broken in half, splinters. It was creepy. It looked like an air b- had been bombed. We, as Floridians, think of wind as destructive. But for the Jewish mind, that's not the same thing. See, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew is the word ruach, means breath or wind. The Greek word is the word pneuma, like pneumatic or pneumonia means wind or breath. And God's wind, God's breath, is not a destructive force, like a hurricane, but a creative one. Let me show you just two quick examples. In Genesis chapter one, it tells us that the earth is formless and void and covered with water. And what happens? The spirit of God, the breath of God, hovers over the waters and creates, makes creation. Or in Genesis chapter two, God takes a lump of red dirt that's what the word Adam means, and breathes his breath into the dirt and makes a man, a human being. In the Jewish mind, you see, scripturally, wind is a creative force. And so when those men are gathered in that upper room and the wind of God comes through, we see God creating something, something permanent. You know what it is? The church. Pentecost is the creation of with God's, by God's breath of the church. And I want to ask you something. Do you think of the church as a supernatural army? Do you think of the church as an organization, in fact, the only organization that is empowered by God's breath? Do you think of the church as an unstoppable force, a permanent force empowered by God? That is what the Bible says, and I'll tell you what Jesus says about it, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, about this church thing that we belong to, that we are a part of, the only organization on the planet Earth empowered and, and, and strengthened by God's breath, Jesus says, and I tell you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, listen to this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice something about that. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Most people think of the church as a hunker down, right? We create a bunker, we are a a club that we have to protect what we're doing. Nonsense. The church, we rule, we run it all, we win. The gates of hell, according to Jesus, will not triumph over us. On the contrary, we triumph over it. We are on the offense. We are going to storm that hill, not because of our own power or creative preaching or programs, but empowered by God's breath and spirit who gives us the strength and courage to change the world. And we are and we will. Tim Keller writes about those first Christians at Pentecost in that room 2,019 years ago. He writes, what we see is that a small band of ignorant, uneducated men and women from a marginal class and a marginal people group in the Roman Empire within 200 years became the most powerful force in the Roman Empire. If you didn't follow that, I'll put it to you like this. What we see is a group of rednecks and hillbillies from nowheresville within 200 years, had conquered the world. Why? Because God's breath empowered them, and because Jesus wins. And friends, if that's true, and it is, that God created the church, a supernatural, permanent, enduring organization, and creates and enables and strengthens it by the power of his breath, that leads us to point number three, and that (laughs) that better, at least, you and I hope. Remember back on D Day Plus One, everybody knew, everybody knew that Allied victory was inevitable. On June 6, 1944, at 6 p.m., everybody knew that the end of the, of the war was inevitable. There would be suffering, there would be great struggle and cost, people would die. But victory was assured. It was not a matter of if, friends but when? Let me ask you a question. What are you struggling against right now? What are you wrestling with right now? Don't lose sight of the end game. Don't lose sight. Just last week, um, some of you know I had to, my brother Jimmy and I had to move my dad to a memory care facility in Pensacola. That's why I was driving out Route 10. And uh, my dad is in the advanced stages of dementia. And I went into his room to visit him a week ago, Friday. And at first, he didn't recognize me, which is pretty upsetting, I'll admit. But the next day, Jimmy and I went, and uh, he was in bed. And I said, Dad, I'm going to celebrate mass for you. And he, he wanted to get up and get dressed for church, which was kind of cute in a way. I said, Dad, just stay there. <laughs> But I I celebrated Mass by his bedside. My brother Jimmy was with me. And uh, I I blessed him. I gave him the Eucharist. He said the Lord's prayer with us. Jimmy was just a mess. And I was having a hard time as well, I'll admit. But he said to me, he goes, his exact words were, bro, (laughs) bro, how do you do that? And how do you do what, Jimmy? He said, how can you pray over dad without losing it? And I said to him, Because, Jimmy, Jesus wins. Friends, human beings can overcome incredible odds and suffering. We and you and I can endure tremendous suffering and heartache if we know that the end is worth it. If we know that victory is assured. You know, I've never had a baby. But I've seen it done. Three times. And it looks pretty painful to me. Any woman will tell you, any woman will tell you the only way you get through that suffering and that struggle and that pain is because you know the end game. And once that child is born, all that suffering that occurred fades away. I've seen that three times too. Friends, if here's the thing, right? Pentecost shows us something critical. That if Jesus wins, and he does, then the Christian life right now is kind of like the time between D-Day and V-Day. There will be suffering. There will be pain. People will die. But we don't lose hope because we know that victory is inevitable. Jesus wins, and because of that, we can carry on. And he even says this, and I'm going to read it to you and wrap up. Jesus says the following words in John 16, 33. He says, in this world, you, y'all, plural, second person plural, in this world, y'all will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Shall we pray. Father, we thank you for blowing up our idols, as painful as it is, and refocusing our lives on you. Help us to remain faithful even in suffering and struggle, knowing that you have in fact overcome the world and that victory is assured and that nothing, nothing can defeat you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.